I want to talk uh, this morning um, about possessing God's promises, possessing God's promises. John Bunyan, who was a Puritan, um, used to say that God has made so many promises to us that a Christian can't take a step forward without treading on one. Um, the way ahead of us in the Christian life is full, is littered with the promises of God. Do you believe that? God, um, as Sue Peter says, has made very great and precious promises to us. And uh, we are those then who are privileged to possess the promises of God. I don't doubt that you as individuals not only uh, would be aware of many promises God has made in his word, uh, and he stands by every one of those, he's good for his word, he's good to his word, but as well as the promises that come from scripture that are general, um, I don't doubt that many of us carry in our souls, if you like, promises that we feel God's made prophetically. I, I believe that would be true of you as a congregation. There'll be things corporately that you feel God has spoken into this church, um, and, and we are believing that he will bring about those things that he's promised. And that'll be true for you as individuals or families or couples, whatever it, it might be. So imagine those promises almost like um, checks, you know, like if someone writes you a check. Um, which is increasingly becoming the old-fashioned way to transfer money. But nevertheless, go with this. A bit like typewriters, um, checks are still being written. Uh, imagine someone writes you a check. So in your pocket, you have a check. Now, as surely as the person who has made that check out to you is trustworthy, that is, at the point that you receive the check, that is something worth celebrating, isn't it? You know, if you believe that they're good to their promise, to their check, that it won't bounce then it's a, at that point, it's worth, on the one hand, a note of celebration. This has been promised to me. However, however, even if the, the source of that check is reliable, it won't bounce, you have to bank it, don't you? You have to, as we would say, bank on it. Bank it, and as you bank it, you're banking on it. So you're actually, if you're like activating what is being promised to you and making it work, making it, in that sense, you're possessing the promise. Now, the nation of Israel, I want to look at this morning, are a reminder to us that it is therefore possible to have received the promise, but not to bank it, not to bank on it, and therefore, finally, for it to come to nothing, because a check, finally, is a piece of paper, isn't it? A promise from God is nothing, unless it is possessed. It's nothing more than a piece of paper. A prophecy is nothing more than a piece of paper, unless it is banked on and possessed by faith. Now, the promised land, think about that title in that context, the promised land, in that sense, was a promise that God gave to his people, a land of hope, a land of promise, a land that he says, flowing with milk and honey, which is a reminder that we don't take the Bible literally <laughs> in some circumstances. I don't mean to shock you by that, but obviously it doesn't literally mean that there were rivers of milk and honey. Honey, after all, would be a slow-flowing river, <laughs> more of a glacier sort of movement. Um, it's not to be taken literally, it's rather a euphemism for the combination of two things that go so well together as an expression, this is a great land. Milk and honey, coffee and chocolates, <laughs> wine and cheese, or, you know, if you taste it a, bit, a little bit lower, a pie and a pint, or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. That sounds good to me, a pie and a pint. That's probably, of those three options, coffee, chocolates, wine, cheese, pie and a pint, that would do me. It's saying it's the stuff that you want. This promised land is God's good stuff that you want. And it was promised to them. And here's the chilling warning. To those that the check was written, only two of the whole of that generation actually 
banked it, banked on it, actually possessed the promises of God. That's a warning, isn't it? It's a warning. Promises, then, are not lucky charms that just by possessing them in your pockets will come to, to come to pass. Promises need not just to be possessed in the sense of being in your possession, but possessed in the sense that you actively lay hold of that which God has put before you. They had to possess the promised land. We also must take hold of that which God has put before us. So what is that for you? What is that for you corporately? What is that for you individually? And what kind of character is it going to take to possess the promises of God? And with that, I transition to the character I want to look at this morning, who is called Caleb. And I want to look at Caleb because he was one of the two, wasn't he, along with Joshua, out of all of that generation who did actually bank the check, who did actually get what God had promised. He promised it to all of them, but many of them fell short. They, Caleb and Joshua, possessed the promises. What kind of character is required for that? And uh, the Apostle Paul says, doesn't he, that these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And I want to just bring a message on Caleb structured around those three things. And to do that, I want to read a little bit of scripture from Numbers. So we're going to start in Numbers 13. It'll be on the screen or you can follow it in your Bibles if you wish. But just to set the scene before we start reading, um, the the 12 spies have gone into the land and uh, this is therefore their report. They've, They've gone in to do a recce. God authorized that recce. Go and check it out. Report back on the good things and the challenges. Here's their report. So this is reading from Numbers 13. As the, as the 12 spies come back. The 12 spies gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. Just pause there. Um, they actually brought back grapes. You know, you may know this story. And it says that it took two men to carry one cluster of grapes. Think about that. Massive grapes. <laughs> I mean, they're grapes the size of tangerines, aren't they? Massive grape. Think about that. Two men to carry one cluster. And I, I must admit, my thought, this is my strange thought process, but I, I think, I hope they were seedless grapes. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's, it's already embarrassing, isn't it? Spitting out pips, especially in someone else's house. You know, it's not, it's not a nice thing to do. But if they're pips, that, anyway, we, we'll move on. But it's just a thought. The point is, there are big grapes. But you'll also notice there are big giants. Isn't that always the way that it is? There are big grapes. God has got great things for us. But standing next to those grapes, there's always big giants, aren't there? There's always something or someone or some issue that is threatening to stop us having what God has for us. Big big grapes and big giants would be another title for this talk. And this is what they say. There is indeed, here is its fruit. Here are the big grapes. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And then a few verses on in chapter 14, we read this. Then Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. 
If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of this land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. So you hear these two reports. On the one hand, Caleb and Joshua focus on the big grapes, or more in particular the big God, who is giving this land, and the rest of them focus on the big giants and say, no, 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 we can't do this. So Joshua and Caleb saying we can, the rest saying we can't. And then in the end, God speaks and passes his verdict. Listen to his verdict, particularly on Caleb. This is reading on a little bit further in Numbers 14. Here God is speaking, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Notice then, the Lord says there's something different about Caleb, and for this difference, he will inherit the promises when the rest won't. What is the difference? Well, let's start with those three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Let's start there. Notice then, wholehearted love. Do you see what the Lord says about Caleb? He has a different spirit. He defines that then. He follows me wholeheartedly. In contrast to the others, who on the one hand were the Lord's people, but were half-hearted in their devotion to him, with Caleb there's nothing half-hearted. It's a wholehearted love for the Lord. Eight times this is said of the man, in a very short section of scripture. In other words, it's not like he has a whole book written after him. In a short description of Caleb, eight times it is repeated that he was wholehearted for the Lord. He was known for that. If you knew Caleb, the standout feature of his life was his wholehearted devotion for the Lord. It may even be a play on his name. His name, Kol Lev, Caleb. Kol Lev is in Hebrew, two parts, meaning all heart or big heart. And the man lived up to his name. He was big hearted, all heart for the Lord. Now here's the first thing. If you've got that check and God has made promises to you, the first characteristic of those who bank on it is that they are wholehearted for the Lord. That is to say, there is a passion and a devotion to the Lord that is not just a feature of their lives, it defines them. You know, if someone's going to speak of that person, the thing that comes to mind, irrespective of all the other things on their CV, is that they follow the Lord wholeheartedly. That was Caleb. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a Christian, and, and yet sometimes the things I would be known for are other things. Do you know what I mean by that? I am a Christian, but I would like to be known for this achievement or for this possession or whatever it might be. And and it's possible to be a Christian then, isn't it? But to be defined by everything else apart from the Lord and our love for him. When people think of us, speak of us, what do they say? And what would we be known for? What would we like them to say? That is the standout feature about you and me. You know, know, so often it'll be, oh, so-and-so, Yes, they're a Christian, but do you know they earn a three-figure salary? Or they own three houses? Or they can run the marathon in under three hours? Or whatever it else. Now, they're all fine. They're all good things. But let us be known for the Lord. 
Let us be known eight times because of our devotion to him. And and what is it about our lives that therefore is the standout feature? I, I remember hearing a testimony that really affected me. I was probably... 17, 18, so I was quite young, and, uh, and uh, you know, I remember hearing a guy called Alan Redpath give a testimony, and he was sharing his story about how he'd, he was a very good rugby player and a very good businessman, and the two things had become the standout features of his life. He made a lot of money, and he was good at rugby. And at the time I was playing a lot of rugby, probably meant far too much to me. And I remember his testimony because he said that he became a Christian but remains known by those other things. He just added Christianity in as kind of a little hobby for a Sunday morning, but the primary thing he was known for was everything else. And he, he, he had a friend who challenged him. He saw this going on in his life, that he, he was the Lord's, but he was living for everything else. And, he, he, and this friend challenged him, and he said to him this phrase, and I remember it, it stuck in my mind. He said, you know, Alan, it is possible to have a saved soul, but a wasted life. It is possible to have a saved soul, but a wasted life. We, we are genuinely saved, but we're not living for the Lord. And he said that he went home after that friend had said that, and it was like those words were just going round and round in his head. You know, he went home on the train, and he said it was almost like in the motion of the train, he heard those words, saved soul, wasted life, saved soul, wasted life. You know, it is possible, isn't it, to have a saved soul, but a wasted life. And the the challenge of Caleb is his willingness to put the Lord first in everything. Notice, even over and against friends and family. Now, I'm sure he loved his friends, and I'm sure he loved his family. But did you notice that when everyone else was saying, we can't do this, did you notice Caleb silenced the people? I I don't doubt that that would have come across as a rude moment, as he said, hey, 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 shh, (laughs) enough of this. Now, those were his friends. It's awkward sometimes, isn't it, to, to go against the flow, to go against what all of those that we would like to like us would like us to do. It's hard sometimes to, to stand out. But for Caleb, whilst he loved his friends, he loved the Lord first. And if the Lord was calling him this way, he would silence his friends if they were calling him that way. Even his family. Later, you know, they, they'll put, play that card, you know, what about our wives and children? It was a, it was a risk to the family to possess this land, humanly speaking. But even his family, he would put in the rightful place of following the Lord with him. I remember my, um, when I was sort of thinking through what I was going to do after university, um, I remember going to see my granddad, and I, I basically thought it through, and I decided, much to the shock of my friends at university, that I wasn't going to go into the career I was thinking of, but I was going to, um, I was going to train to, to lead a church. And um, this is obviously particular to me. It's not that God necessarily is calling you to that. But for me, that's what I knew God was calling me to. And it meant laying aside other things that were on the table as often. And I remember my granddad, who was kind of a Christian in that kind of, you know, um, probably mostly a church-going sense. And I remember he'd kind of helped me financially a bit through university. And I remember going to see him and dreading the conversation I needed to have with him, say, look, granddad, I'm sorry, but I'm not actually going to, you know, become a lawyer, which is what he wanted me to do, and what I was thinking about doing, I feel God's calling me to church leadership. And I, just, I remember his disappointment with me. You know, you know that feeling sometimes even family can be just disappointed. I remember him looking me in the eyes and saying, Andrew, that's not what we've helped you through university for. You know, that's, that's not what this money was for. It wasn't for you to then go and be a church leader. You know, for him it was a disappointment. 
It's hard sometimes, isn't it, to be a disappointment to those that we love. But how much harder to be a disappointment to the Lord? You know, for Caleb, it was the Lord that he lived to please, first and foremost. He cut across his friends and family if necessary to do that. Wholehearted love for the Lord. Now, I want to challenge us on that because we've just received communion where we consider the wholehearted love of the Lord for us. We're merely reflecting back to him what he has already shown to us, that even to death on a cross, as the picture on the screen behind me shows, even to death on the cross, Jesus Christ has died for us. And as George Herbert, uh, the poet, put it, uh, as, he, as he looked at a picture of the crucified Christ, he said these words, Thou art my loveliness, my life and my light, beauty alone to me. In other words, you are what I live for. You are enough for me, Lord Jesus Christ, and I will be wholehearted for you. If he died for us, let us live for him. Wholehearted love, that's the first thing. We won't bank that check without it. The second thing that we definitely see in Caleb is courageous faith. Courageous faith. Caleb, who is of the tribe of Judah, um, has a roar of a lion about him as he silences the people who are all in fear and says, we can certainly do this in faith. And uh, this then makes him stand out in God's eyes as a man with a different spirit because he believed God could do it when everyone else didn't. Courageous faith. Now, before we unpack what faith is, just a few words about what it isn't. It's not that faith, for Caleb, was pretending. You know, sometimes when you hear people speaking about faith, it sounds a lot like pretending, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean by that? As if faith means, let's not talk about the fact that there are problems, or that, you know, I remember someone telling me that they were, that they, they were believing God, that they were healed, whilst, obviously, they were still sick. And I'm like, that's, you know, you're not healed, you're sick. You know, let's pray for healing, but let's not pretend. That's just what kids do in the playground, isn't it? That's not what it means to be a Christian. We're not those who pretend. Caleb wasn't someone who came back and said, well, I didn't see any giants. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think there's anything in the land that's a problem. No, no, he saw the giants, and he was willing to accept, yes, there are giants in the land. It's going to be a fight to take possession of this land. Faith, then, is not pretending. Faith is quite happy to, to talk about the problems. Faith is, is not some disbelief that there are any issues out there that's just unrealistic. You know, do you know what I mean? Sometimes you listen to people and you think, that's not faith. That's just pretending. That's just hiding from reality. You know, let's, if, we, if we haven't got the money, let's be honest about that. If, if we're sick, let's be honest about it. Whatever the challenges might be, if we're facing redundancy, let's be honest about that. Faith then isn't pretending. What is faith? Faith, for Caleb, defined simply as this, is bringing God into the equation. See, that's the only difference, isn't it? He saw the giants like everyone else. The one thing he saw that they didn't see is that the Lord is with us. That's the only reason that Caleb says, we can certainly do this. What he's speaking up for is not a, a kind of brave pretending, but simply that God's with us. Now, if God is on our side of the equation, surely that changes the outcome. God plus anyone is a majority. If God is for us, who can be against us? See, they list all of these ites, you know, them, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, uh, etc., etc., the Canaanites. And absolutely, if it's just us against them, let's run, run away and go back to Egypt, which is the conclusion the rest come to. We should go back to Egypt. We can't do this. 
Well, absolutely. If there's no God in the equation, quite right. We're completely outnumbered. But if God is for us, who can be against us? That's Caleb's argument. Did you notice that? We can certainly do this. Why? The Lord is with us. And that changes everything. Now, fear, which is the opposite of faith, is effectively, fear is that way of thinking through life that has not really got God in the equation. You know what I'm saying? I'm not not saying we don't believe in God, but we become practical atheists who effectively take God out of the equation of what we're facing, and of course the result is fear. Because if God is not with us, yes, we are facing challenges as a church and individually that are way beyond us. Yes, there is opposition that completely outnumbers us. And if we take God out of the equation, we will be left with a fear that makes us also want to retreat. You know those kinds of moments where you know what God's calling you to do, but everything in you, in fear, just wants to take a step back. And then another little shuffle back, and before we know it, we're heading back to Egypt. That's remarkable, isn't it? The, the fact that they, they then, in the, in the narrative that we'd read on, they then, fear just messes with your mind, doesn't it? Fear totally loses a sense of proportion and of reality. It causes you to entertain scenarios that don't really exist. Do you know what I mean by that? You find yourself worrying about things, and, and, and you've created a reality that isn't really true. They say, let us go back to Egypt. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. Can you imagine that? How on earth did they get to a place where now they're rewriting the script so that Egypt is the promised land? That's incredible, isn't it? No, no, Egypt was a place where you were enslaved to Pharaoh, and God delivered you from that. How on earth are we going back to that place? But that's what fear can do. It can send us right back, running away from what God has called us to. Fear, in that sense, is a bully. Fear is a bully. And bullies do that, don't they? They stand over you with the presence to intimidate, to cause you to shrink back, to go quiet, to to fall silent, to become passive under their rule. Fear is a bully. And in the end, Caleb is defined simply that he stood up to the bully of fear. He stood up to the bully of fear and said, we are not going to make this decision out of fear, but out of faith. I remember when uh, we moved, when I was a boy, I was about seven, I think, we moved from living in one area in South Wales to living in uh, Surrey. And that meant that I had my first day at school as the new kid. (laughs) You know, it's always a horrible day, isn't it, when you're a new kid in a school where everyone else has already been there for a while. And so um, on my first day as the new kid, I was introduced to the bully. (laughs) There's always a school bully, isn't there? And in the playground, I remember this bully coming up to me and pushing me around, and I was new, and I didn't know who this boy was, and he seemed quite big. And anyway, to cut a long story short, I went home that evening with a black eye and um, from the bully. And I remember my mum and dad's reaction being quite different. Um, my parents revealed in this. My mum saw me first, and I remember she sort of um, getting quite uptight, you know, oh, this is terrible, you know, in a, in a <coughs> female voice, sorry, I don't know what that was. <laughs> sorry, that's not a fair representation of my mum. <laughs> Uh, she's much nicer than that. But anyway, she was, oh, this is terrible. I'm going to phone the teacher. This is awful. Anyway, my dad overheard this and, and he said, you know, came out, what's going on, love? What's going on? And he, he saw, he understood the situation. He said, right, I'll, I'll handle this, love. He said, I'll handle this. Come with me, son. Come with me. And he took me into his study and he said, um, right, I'm going to teach you to fight. <laughs> that was his solution to the bully. And he said, right, this is how you make a fist. And, uh, and then he taught me to punch. And he said, right, if the bully comes to you tomorrow, warn him once that if you do that again, I'll hit you. And if he does it again, hit him as hard as you can. In the solar plexus, not in the face, I hasten to add, before my parents are 
contacted by social services. <laughs> this is many years ago, and it was in Wales, and it's okay there. Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyways, the point is, the next day, I'm not particularly giving this advice for how to handle bullying. This is spiritual now. We're going to spiritualize this in a moment to get out of this hole that I've dug for myself. But the point is, the next day, the bully did come along to me, started pushing me. And I remember just my father's words, if you do that again, I'll hit you. He did it again, and I rocked back, and I hit him as hard as I could um, in the solar plexus. Now, the point is, from that moment onwards, there wasn't a bully <laughs> in our playground. Not necessarily because I was, or, or not the same bully anyway. I, I probably became a school bully after that, but not the, not the same bully anyway. Because it wasn't so much that the guy was overpowering me. It's that fear does that, isn't it? It makes you cower. But stand up to a bully, and they back off. Stand up to a bully and they retreat. That's the point. It's fear. It's intimidation. Now, how long, how much longer will some of us be in the shadow of the bully of fear that stops us stepping forwards in faith to what God's calling us to? Fear makes us go passive, doesn't it, when we should have been active. Fear makes us go silent when we should have been speaking out. And Caleb is the one person who stands up to the bully and says, enough, we're not going to be pushed around by fear. We are a people of faith. Now, what is that for you? Who, is, who are the giants? I don't know what we're facing. I'm, I'm not wanting to belittle those things. They, they can be very real and cause very real fear. Nights that aren't easy to sleep through. Days that aren't easy to live through because of the real presence of fear. I'm not wanting to belittle that, but I am wanting to say this. That the Lord is with us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let us not be those who turn back in fear let us be those who feel the fear and step forward in faith. You see, that's the other thing about Caleb. That's the other thing about faith. It's not the absence of fear, is it? It's not that men and women of faith don't feel fear. Even Jesus felt fear. We all feel the fear, don't we? The difference with men and women of faith is that we feel the fear, but we act in faith. We feel the fear, but our decisions are made out of faith. Whether or not we can do this, whilst feeling the fear, will finally be, be decided by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? I want to encourage you, as a church corporately, make your decisions, whilst feeling the fear, make your decisions out of faith. Never be pushed around by the bully of fear. Stand up to him, and he backs off, in Jesus' name. Courageous faith, wholehearted love, and then briefly and finally, enduring hope. You see, you may have backed down in those bullies like Caleb did, and yet for Caleb, it was now 40 years later before the check would finally be banked. <laughs> That's a long wait. See, some of God's promises come like torpedoes, don't they? We pray and zoom. Courageous faith and you've got it. And others come like tortoises, <laughs> slowly but surely. And for Caleb, he had the check, he had wholehearted love, he displayed courageous faith, and yet it would be 40 years later before he banked it through enduring hope. You see, in the end, the majority won the day. Fear reigned and ruled over Israel on that day, and they turned back. And as a result, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, going nowhere, round in circles. Moses continually trying to convince everyone that it was a shortcut, you know, like men do when they're lost. We call it a shortcut and refuse to ask for directions. But nevertheless, for 40 years, this shortcut was going nowhere as they died in the wilderness. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Caleb, God had promised to me, I'd acted in courageous faith, and I find myself for 40 years wandering with the very people who screwed it up for me. If I was that man, that would be a recipe for a bitter and twisted old man, wouldn't it? If you met me 40 years later, you would find a man who was able to tell you that it's not fair, it's not been easy for me, life is hard, and, 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 and uh, you know, God is, yes, he's there, but it's not easy to be a Christian. You know, and, and in other words, oozing bitterness, oozing frustration. But that's not what we meet 40 years later with Caleb. Listen to these words, our final reading today. Here's Caleb, 40 years on. You click on to the next slide um, in uh, Joshua chapter 14. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as vigorous today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. So give me this hill country that the Lord promised me on that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. What a great guy, eh? What a great old man to meet. Someone who's known the frustrations of life. He's known the wilderness years. He's known the, the times in life where we feel like we are going round in circles. He's known all of that, and yet his spirit is as fresh as a daisy. <laughs> He's kept his soul from bitterness, from discouragement, from disappointment, and you find him 85 years of old saying, now can I have it? <laughs> what a great attitude. He's still got the check, and he still believes that he will bank it by faith. And that's the quality we call enduring hope. It's that ability just to keep going, believing God, even when it doesn't seem to come round as quickly as we thought it would, Trusting in the Lord in spite of everything, bringing about the promises of God 40 years later. 40 years, that's a long time to wait, isn't it? Some of us may feel God promised things to us, and we may feel like we've been waiting a long time. 40 minutes is a long time to wait. 40 years. You know, we're not a culture that finds waiting easy, are we? We struggle when we're kept waiting. I, I read a, an amusing letter that was sent um, anonymously from someone to B&Q. Do you remember um, when Ellen MacArthur sailed around the world? Do you remember this? And, um, and B&Q sponsored her yacht uh, with bright orange masts, uh, sails. Well, this was a letter that was sent to B&Q after she arrived back safely. Dear sir, my congratulations to you for getting a yacht to leave the UK on September the 28th, 2004 sailed 27,300 miles around the world and arrived back 72 days later. Could you please let me know when the kitchen that I ordered 96 days ago will be arriving from your warehouse 13 miles away? <laughs> That's a great letter, isn't it? <laughs> and don't you feel like that with God sometimes? You know, the, the logic is, if you can do that, why can't you do this? Did you see the logic? And don't you feel like that with God sometimes? Let's be honest. Don't you feel like that with God sometimes? If you can do this, you know, if we see the wonders of creation and the power of God, why can't you just get me that? <laughs> why can't you fulfill this promise a bit quicker? Caleb could have been like that, couldn't he? Bitter, frustrated, disappointed, twisted. But instead, in his old age, we feel a freshness. A man who has grown old, but 
grown great in his trust in the Lord. And I want to encourage us. Some of us may have been around this block of life a few more times than others. I want to encourage us to be those who, like, a, like uh, Caleb, are still as vigorous, still as enthusiastic to lay hold of the stuff that God's got for us. It was an old man, Paul, who said, I press on, forgetting what's behind, I press on to take hold of that for which the Lord Jesus took hold of me. If you're still alive today, don't retire. In the kingdom of God, there's no retirement, is there? Retirement is death in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we might retire from our work, of course. In terms of employment, I don't mean that. But in terms of seeking God, in terms of possessing his promises, in terms of seeing his kingdom come, let us not grow old on those things. But rather, like Caleb, let's keep believing that we will bank those checks. Keep believing that God is good to his word. Whatever he's spoken over our lives, we will have it by wholehearted love courageous faith, and enduring hope. Don't give up. I remember hearing about Winston Churchill going to his old school, um, Eton, and, uh, that, sorry, Harrow? Eton. Harrow. Harrow. And uh, there he um, was asked after the war to give a, a speech, and he gave his shortest speech, perhaps his most memorable in the sense that anyone could remember this speech. He gave his speech, and his speech was simply this. He stood up, and to his old school he said these words, never Never, never. Never, never, never. Never, 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 never give up. And then he sat down. That was enough. And may that be enough for us as well. If God's promised us something, may we never, never give up. Amen?